We're reading from a part of the Bible called Luke, which is written by a guy called Luke, who is outlining Jesus' life and his teaching and his ministry. And in this passage, he records a story that Jesus told. So we're looking at Luke chapter 15 from verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And it's um, great to be diving into this story that Jesus tells, but also diving into the question, is there more to life than a good time? And the, the reason this is such an important question is kind of like from the clip there, everyone has some kind of a view on what makes us happy. Even, even if you couldn't articulate what that is, our lived experience demonstrates that we have certain beliefs about what a good life actually looks like. In fact, it's, it's basically unavoidable. Every decision that you make is a decision about happiness. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French mathematician, so you wouldn't think he'd know that much about happiness. But here's a quote that I think sums it up pretty well in terms of the human experience when he says, All people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every person. Like that is a reasonable observation. Every single decision you make is a small or minor calculation about what will make me happy from the moment you wake up. So when you wake up and you decide either to get up on the first alarm or hit snooze 27 times and make yourself miserable and have weird semi-conscious dreams, it's a decision about what will make me happier. The decision then to either go to work or call in sick is a decision about what will make me happier. The decision even coming here to church this morning, whether you're someone who comes week in or week out or whether someone brought you along, was the decision like, look, what would be, it's a beautiful day out there. What would make me happier to actually go along to this or to head somewhere else? Every single decision, it's unavoidable. And we make all of these dozens, hundreds, thousands of little calculations. But when you zoom out, they kind of aggregate to a view about life, a view about what makes a good life. And one of the most obvious and instinctive answers to this is that life's about a good time, about things that feel good, about more freedoms and more fun. 
And this is kind of an obvious sort of, I guess, answer to that question. We want to try new things. We want new experiences. We want new foods, new cities, new places, new toys, new clothes, new experiences. We want new stories that we can tell. We want, we want just new things. And we don't want to waste our lives and we don't want to get to the end of our days thinking like, I shoulda, coulda, woulda. There was more that I actually could have done. You might have heard this quote from Henry David Thoreau when he says, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with the song still inside them. And like most Instagrammable quotes, he never actually said it. What he said was like a lot longer and a lot more sort of convoluted and he just wasn't great with the socials. So, so, so someone sort of trimmed it up. Someone trimmed it up and we sort of get the vibe. But that is a fear that most people have. The idea that you would die with the song still in you. Like there was something you could have done or should have done and didn't and you missed your shot. And so the idea that life is about a good time is like, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to get to the end of my time and think like, I just didn't have the courage to kind of step out and do something new. And with that as well, as a culture, it's such a deep belief that it actually shows up in many of our cautionary tales. We tend to think of, of ancient societies as having their kind of fables or cautionary tales, but we too, as a culture, have our cautionary tales. In, um, in 1939, and this is just one example of them, there was a short story by James Thurber written in the New Yorker, and it was called uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. So it sort of later became a film. It was actually just a short story, so it's not the same as the film, but it, it sort of captures that idea. But it's the story of a guy who lives an incredibly boring life, Nobody particularly likes him, notices him, or respects him. But he goes off on these wild imaginary tangents where he considers him, like he imagines himself being a spy or doing something extraordinary with his life. And if you read the book, unlike the movie that like, ends quite inspirationally, the story is more of like a warning. Because this, this sad little guy doesn't have the courage to sort of go out and do something new and ends up just doing the same thing year after year and living a quiet life of desperation. And that's a deep fear that we have because our belief is man, a good life is not one spent lacking the courage to actually try new things or to do new things. And whilst this might seem like a very modern view, and it, it's probably the case that we have more opportunity to explore this idea than maybe any society before us, it's certainly not the case that this is a new idea or a new approach to life. In fact, in the story that Jesus tells, he's addressing this very worldview. And he picks it up in the story about two sons, an older son and a younger son. And of course, families haven't changed that much over time. So it's the younger son who goes off the rails and the older one who's kind of bitter at his younger son and feels like the younger son gets away with everything. You can tell I'm a youngest child as well. <laughs> but we'll pick up the story in sentence 11 of Luke chapter 15. And Jesus starts the story in this way. He says, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So the younger son has the courage to step out of the confines of family. And he says to his dad, I want my inheritance early. Now the reason you can tell that this is a story and not a historical account is that in Jesus' society, in the ancient Near East, this would never happen. You would never dishonor your family. You would never dishonor your father by saying, I want my inheritance early. That is the, the most casual way of saying, you're dead to me. I want your stuff and I don't want you. And his plan here is to take the money and to leave the family, to leave the family business and to leave his culture 
and go exploring. And here, we're told something that again would never happen, that the father hears this request and he does it. He divides his property and he gives it to his son. And part of the reason this would never happen is it's not that he had to go to the bank and just withdraw the cash quietly and give it to his son. In order to give his son his inheritance, he would have to have sold a plot of land, which means everyone in the community would know, oh, your son has actually asked for his inheritance early and you're giving it to him. So we can tell that this, is, this would never have happened and therefore Jesus is trying to make a point about something else. And so we continue the story. It says in Luke 15, 13, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So here the son has taken this money, the early inheritance that he's got, and he has gone full end-of-season footy trip, Bali, Gold Coast, all at once in one single go, and he's spent it on everything. Here he's like, I'm going to go for a good time. I'm going to deny myself no pleasure. I'm going all out and all in. I'm going to enjoy every possible experience, enjoy every possible new thing, and I'm going to have a good time. He's going to experiment with this idea of what would happen if I just kind of dropped my responsibilities, turned everything down on that end of life, and in, in terms of good times, turn everything up on the other end. And he's gone all out. Now, it is the case that m- most people haven't gone like quite this hard. And this is a story that Jesus is telling to kind of illustrate one potential approach to life. But most have kind of tinkered with this possibility. There is like a, a sweet spot in your like from sort of 18 to early 20s where you, you hit the, the sweet spot in life where it's like you have minimum responsibilities and maximum freedoms. And that's generally the time, that's the both-and season of life, where you can sort of do everything. That's generally the time where people kind of toy with this idea mostly. Where you think, yeah, what would it be like if I, just, if I went all out? If I went overseas, if I discovered maybe who I am, if I actually worked out what I'm like in another context. That's the time of life when we're most likely to experiment with this idea. And so here, Jesus, maybe it was the case in the ancient world as well, starts this story with a younger son. He's experimenting with this idea and seeing how it goes. But like many have kind of experienced, one of the challenges with this view to life is that it often results in some kind of a crash. And here, it's quite a significant one. Have a look at what Jesus says in this story. It says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and it began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Most people don't quite hit rock bottom like this guy has. But here, this is the crash. That often the pursuit of endless pleasure can be there for a good time, but not for a long time. And the reason this often happens is because there is what you'd call like a a law of diminishing returns. I learned very little in high school economics. But one thing that did kind of, in fact, you know, I probably haven't really learned this principle either because I couldn't explain it to you on the X and Y graph. But basically it's like this. If you have something that that is enjoyable, if you have more of it, it increases your enjoyment, but then eventually it plateaus and then it actually starts to decline. So it's not always the case that more is better. It's more, more is better to a point, but then it plateaus and then declines. And this certainly is the case with pursuing pleasure. This is what sometimes drug users call chasing the dragon. The idea that the first time you get high, it feels incredible, 
But then you often spend the rest of your life trying to get back that original high. And because the body builds up tolerance, it means taking more and more or harder and harder drugs or mixing them in order to experience something unique again. And it's the same whether it's with sex or with pornography that often it it requires an escalation in order to feel what you first felt. And this can lead to riskier and riskier behavior that can sometimes end up in the kind of crash that this guy experiences here where you lose all your money and maybe even all your friends. But to be honest, this isn't often the experience for most people or the way they go about pursuing life as a good time. The most of the time, it's just more about having just more options and more freedoms. The idea that like, yeah, look, I'm not going to go absolutely you know, hard out. I'm not going to go into like wild living like this guy. But surely a life with more options and more experiences is going to be better than one that's not. And this has actually led to one of the strangest principles in life. I don't know if you've ever come across this before, but a guy called Barry Schwartz who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice explains it in this way. He says, there's no question that some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow that more choice is better than some choice. Did you catch his point there? He says, there's no question that some choice is better than none. We get that. But it actually doesn't follow that more choice is better than some. And to explain it, he uses a study that was done in the year 2000 by psychologists Sheena Ayenga and Mark Lepper from Columbia and Stanford University, and it was about jams. Now, I know know I've got your attention now, a study about jams, how thrilling. But what they did was, to illustrate this principle, they went to a regular food market on a regular day, and on one day, they put 24 different jams on a table. Then on another day, They put six jams on the table, and then they recorded the results. And the results were that the table, when it had 24 on it, attracted more customers, but the one with six actually led to more sales. And the principle they deducted from this is what they call the paralysis of choice. That when you have a bit of choice, it can lead to action, and when you have too much choice, it leads to paralysis. And we all know this. We didn't need a Stanford study to tell us this because if you have a subscription service and you've tried to choose a movie on it, you realize that sometimes you can spend the length of a movie trying to choose a movie and it leaves you with an awful feeling at the end of it, doesn't it? But it's not just with that. I mean, we live in a culture of super abundance. And so that means it's not just with movies. It's with clothes, with anything. There is so much choice and so many opportunities. I could be or do anything that often it leads to a kind of a paralysis. Our pursuit of a good time and more options and more freedoms ironically actually leads to this sense of like just anxious paralysis. There is too much I could possibly be doing and now I don't know what to do. But it actually gets worse because not only does it often paralyze us from choice, but then even if you do choose, you're less happy with your choice. Just the fact that you had more options means that if you actually do land on a choice, you feel worse about it. So let's say after an hour of searching, you finally land on a movie. You watch it, it was okay, but you have this nagging feeling that maybe you could have chosen the perfect movie. And it's out there somewhere and you've missed the quest. And so now you're sadder because of it. Whereas back in the day, if you had to go to the videos, there wasn't, there's this ancient archive called a video store where you would go and get a, a tape the size of a book, the size of a child's head, and you had like three options, 
And sometimes when you got there, it was already gone anyway, so you had to choose something from the previous week. But ironically, the more choice we have, the worse we feel about the choices that we make. And this is what you might call the tyranny of choice. That even as we pursue a life with a good time, with more freedoms, more fun, more options, we actually somehow end up feeling worse about the choices that we end up making, even if they would have been the ones we'd made anyway. And you add social media into the mix, and there's endless examples of people who are having not just a good time, but potentially a better time. And so even when we make choices, we're perpetually haunted by the sense of like, but did I make the best choice? Perfection is possible, and it's out there, and I haven't found it. And so what this means is, whenever we have to limit ourselves, or whenever we face the natural course of life, which means limiting ourselves, because every time you make a decision, you are literally choosing one thing over many other options. You're cutting off all kinds of options. Whenever we limit ourselves, we feel stressed and anxious. You have a good job, but what if there's a better job out there? You live in a good city or you have a good place, but what if there's a better one out there? You're in a good relationship, but what if there's a better one? You might have a family and, a, and it's a great family life, but you're like, but, but what if I could, I'm missing out on something? What if I could just shirk my responsibilities and find a better life? And then it can lead people to being, feeling stuck in their responsibilities and resenting even things like a good family because it means that maybe there could be something else that I could be pursuing. Maybe the choices that I've made are in the way of a happy life and a good life. This is the crash that comes with pursuing life as a good time. And not only that, but I don't know if you saw in the story, but the thing that really led to the crash was that there was a famine in the land that he was in. One of the things that life as a good time fails to take into consideration is there are things out of our control like suffering, like war. And if life is just about a good time, then suffering really is in the way of it. It's, it's really a worldview that's too small to navigate the difficulties and complexities of life. Whether it's the limits that we have to live with, or whether it's suffering that we have to deal with. And so ultimately, any which way you go, there's always a crash. And so Jesus, in kind of illustrating this in the, in the life of the younger son, says he kind of hits, he hits rock bottom, he hits the crash. And then he has this moment of clarity. Look what happens in the story. In Luke 15, 17, it says, But when he came to himself, so this is the sense of like kind of he's had this sudden moment of clarity, like what am I doing here? When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the son is at his lowest point, And this may have been something that you've experienced or it may not have. But he, d he then makes a plan to get out of this. And he thinks, look, I'll head back to my father, hat in hand, and apologize for everything. Now at this point, the audience that Jesus is telling this story to would be like, this is what we expected. This is a cautionary tale about wayward sons Kids who don't keep the traditions, don't listen to their parents, they kind of go off to a far land, they learn their lesson, and they come back hat in hand. And the expectation in an ancient culture is that if you did that, and if you humiliated your family in that way, that you wouldn't be able to come back and just slot back into family life. You don't just get to do that. He, he's asking them just to come back not as a son, but as just a hired servant. That even just for employment from his father would be enough. There is, he feels like, I've damaged our relationship to the point where it can't be repaired. And so all I'm asking for is just for a job. 
But look at how the father actually responds in the story. And this is the key to what Jesus is actually getting at and why he's telling us this story. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father doesn't respond by accepting the son's terms. The son has sort of come and he's got his rehearsed speech. I don't know if you've ever done this before. Maybe it's normally if you've got to confront someone over something, you might rehearse the speech, little mini-movies in your mind about how it will go. And you can see the son's done that, and he comes to his dad, and he starts his rehearsed speech, and the father interrupts him. Before he can finish off his, little, his, his offering and his, his kind of humbling before his dad, his dad interrupts him and actually embraces him and hugs him and welcomes him in. And not only that, but he throws a party. So this son who has taken so much from the father, the father actually says, bring the best robe, which is likely to be his own robe. He says, put a ring on his finger, kill a fattened calf. This is like the prime meat for a party. He says, throw a party for him because my son is actually back and welcomes him home. Now, anyone who is listening to this story in the ancient Near East, as Jesus told it, would be like, this will never happen. There is no way that a father would respond this way to a wayward son in that culture at that time. And the reason Jesus is telling this story is because it's not about a, cult- a father in an ancient Near Eastern culture. It's about God. It's a story about God and us. That actually what he's describing in the story is what the Bible talks about in terms of sin. That actually it's wanting God's stuff without wanting relationship with the father. And that's exactly what the son has in this story. He wants no relationship with his father, but wants his things and goes off without him. But when he comes back, it's not that the father says, right, you can live your days now in unending shame until you've paid off the debt of humiliation that you poured upon me. No, the father welcomes him in and loves him and celebrates because he says, this son of mine who was lost is now found. And he rejoices. And the point of the story is this, that to come to relationship with God is not to come to a God who will stand hand in hips over you for the rest of eternity, just saying, oh, look who's come crawling back. I knew you would. You've made a mess of it, and now you've come crawling back. No, actually, it's a God who loves us and who knows us and is like the Father in this story, who welcomes us home and back into relationship with Him. So you could read this story and think, okay, I get what this is about. Is the fact that we want too much of a good time. We desire too much. But I'd say that's, that's a misreading of what Jesus is actually saying here. A life spent pursuing a good time isn't actually a desire for too much, but too little. C.S. Lewis, the author, put it so eloquently when he says it this way. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus in this story is saying that a life spent just pursuing a good time 
and trying to satisfy our souls with a thousand or even a million little things is no replacement for finding the one thing in which we can find genuine satisfaction, the one whom we were made for, a relationship with God. And I think it's probably fair to say, I don't think it's a misreading, but I think it's fair to say that the idea that life might just be about a good time is partly born out of the idea that if there is a God or gods, even if there is, it's impossible to know he, she, it, them, they, whatever. And therefore, look, the only thing left is to kind of just enjoy life. There was a campaign that ran in the UK that ran bus ads that said exactly that. It was from it was the Atheist Society, something like that. I don't know if it was actually called that. It might have been the Humanism Society or whatever. But the, the thing was simple. It was just, there probably is no God, so just enjoy life. Look, we can't know for sure, but there probably isn't. So the next most obvious thing is like, just enjoy your time. Or even, and no, no spoilers here, I do have a policy, I don't spoil a movie unless it's like 10 years or more older. But at the end, and again, it's not a spoiler, at the end of everything all at once, all the time, everywhere, always, <laughs> wherever it's called, it's, the theme is the mother talks to the daughter, is like, look, the universe is confusing, it's a bit random, there's stuff that happens, but in the end, just, just try and be kind and enjoy life. And it comes from the sense of like, look, we can't really know what things are about, so I guess the only thing left is just to enjoy life. But so often that leaves us unsatisfied. It doesn't prepare us for the crash. It doesn't help us to live well with limits. Jesus says, actually, no, God isn't like far off or inscrutable or unknowable or somehow it's this, you have to undertake this epic quest to go to some far off land and perform some obscure ritual to find God in a, in a distant way. But actually, God is near to all of us. He's like a father, and that he loves us and welcomes us back. It's possible to have relationship with God and that you can have it and know him genuinely and truly. And that this story is that describing relationship with God is not about making some big quest to a far-off land to find him, as though he had removed himself from us, but it's actually like a homecoming. That actually it's, it's like the ending of a sense of homesickness. I've, I've traveled very little in my life. But the one time when I went on like kind of an extended trip, sort of a few weeks' time in Indonesia, I got about as sick as I've ever got. And it's, if you've ever had this happen, when you get food poisoning in, like a, in, a, in a foreign land, and particularly we're in a village, so there were very few creature comforts to, to take it easier. When I, when I got sick there, the sense that I wanted to go home in that moment was as strong as I've ever felt it. And I'm not particularly nostalgic or anything like that, but in that moment when you're just like, you're crook as a dog, you've got a fever, you're not really sure what's real and what's not anyway, you're just like, you don't know which way is up. In that moment, the sense that you just want to be home is so strong, isn't it? Because home represents, not just, it's not just about comfort, but it's a sense of belonging, a sense of I'm where I'm supposed to be. And again, not to double dip on C.S. Lewis, although I am, but he describes this coming back to God in this way. He says, Apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy. It is the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. 
that what Jesus' story describes is that to come home to God is to end that sense of homesickness, the sense that something's missing, the sense that I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and that he is a God who welcomes us home with open arms. I'm going to pray in a moment that, um, that God would reveal himself, that as if you are here and a follower of Jesus, that you would have a new depth to the sense that you have found life and life in him, and that if you're someone who's seeking answers to life's deepest questions, that God would reveal himself to you in a profound way. And my prayer in following up on that would be that you are so welcome to join us in each week of this series as we dive into serious life questions. But also the best context for that, is, as Jacob mentioned before, is as we kick off Alpha on the 30th of October, it's a chance over a meal to dive deeper into these questions, but also the questions that come up from these questions. Like here, we're just assuming that what Jesus says is authoritative and real and that Jesus was a historical person and that a, a rational scientific person could believe in the person of Jesus. But that course is the time to dive into those questions. And so we'd love to have you along for that. But right now, as the band comes up, I'm going to pray for us that we would understand exactly what Jesus is talking about in this story. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are not a distant or far-off concept or being. That you're a God who is near, like a father, and that you welcome home your children. And so, Father, I just pray for anyone here who knows you and loves you, that they would have a deep sense that in you they have enough, that in you there is deep satisfaction, and in you there is the meaning and the answers to life that wouldn't leave us on this perpetual quest for more, but that we would know that in you we are satisfied. I just pray as well for anyone here who is seeking that you would reveal yourself to them. That you are a God who is not obscure or hard to find, but has revealed himself through his word. So Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.